On this week's 51%, the Army is working on fixing its broken sexual assault prevention program. If someone comes forward, male or female, and say like, hey, I feel like I've been sexually harassed, usually what happens is it's like maybe you're taking it wrong. A Peace Corps experience prompted a woman to help communities save seeds, and a performance artist gets personal. I'm Allison Dunn, and this is 51%. The Army admitted in November that its sexual assault and harassment prevention program is broken. Now one elite Army Corps is taking matters into its own hands, asking soldiers and survivors for ideas to fix it. Carson Frame reports for the American Homefront Project. Staff Sergeant Shamika Dudley says she wants to show soldiers what it's like to walk in somebody else's boots. That is the goal right there empathy because that's an issue we have too you know if someone comes forward male or female and say like hey i feel like i've been sexually harassed usually what happens is it's like maybe you're taking it wrong early in her army career dudley a linguist at fort bragg helped support a friend who was assaulted she says other soldiers were nearby and could have intervened to stop the crime so in february she pitched an idea to the 18th airborne corps use virtual reality to get soldiers to be proactive if you were a bystander in this situation, you can be like, hey, what you're doing is wrong. Dudley was one of seven finalists at the 18th Airborne Corps' Dragon's Lair event. It's normally a Shark Tank-style competition where the Army asks for tech proposals from rank-and-file soldiers. But this time, instead of focusing on tanks and computers, it asks for suggestions to improve its sexual harassment and assault response program, what the Army calls SHARP. Colonel Joe Bacchino was part of the team that put Dragon's Lair together. He's the innovation officer for the 18th Airborne Corps. With the SHARP program, you have to have buy-in. You have to have trust at the lowest level. And if people don't have trust in the SHARP program, then you don't really have a SHARP program because people aren't really going to report. Pacino says there's been a lot of pressure to rebuild that trust since the death of Fort Hood, Texas specialist Vanessa Guillen last year. An independent review panel found Fort Hood's climate to be permissive of sexual assault and harassment. The 18th Airborne Corps isn't based at Fort Hood. It's headquartered at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. But Pacino says the problem is Army-wide. You know, Fort Hood is not some other planet. Fort Hood is a part of the United States Army. These problems are manifest on big Army installations. So there's public pressure, and there's congressional pressure, and there's soldier pressure, and there's soldiers on social media, and there's soldiers talking to their chain of command. The suggestions were wide-ranging. One Dragon's Lair contestant recommended putting more women on the boards that decide whether assailants will get kicked out of the army. She also wanted to see career incentives for soldiers who act like allies. Another pitched the idea of having volunteers watch for problems at the unit level. The 18th Airborne Corps could take some of those steps itself. But others, like changing how punishment is meted out or giving Sharp more manpower, are up to the Army. Still, Captain Megan Mejia, an Army lawyer, says she feels empowered to take action. She was one of the panelists who reviewed the presentations. We can do more without having that systematic change, right? We can close the information gap with our leaders and junior leaders and junior enlisted. We can talk to them. We can provide more training. If everyone is buying in, then it's getting better automatically. The 18th Airborne Corps has committed to implementing the concepts of all seven Dragon's Lair finalists. It's also sharing insights with Army leaders who are in the process of revamping SHARP.
But the buck may not stop there. In late February, the Pentagon announced a civilian-led commission to address military sexual assault. Once formed, the commission will have 90 days to compile its recommendations and will report directly to President Biden. This is Carson Frame reporting. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. New research shows that exposure to a certain common chemical preservative during pregnancy may reduce protection against breast cancer. Low doses of propylparaben, a chemical preservative found in food, drugs, and cosmetics, can alter pregnancy-related changes in the breast in ways that may lessen the protection against breast cancer that pregnancy hormones normally convey. That's according to University of Massachusetts Amherst Research. Environmental health scientist Laura Vandenberg is the study's senior author. She says the findings, published March 16th in the journal Endocrinology, suggest that propylparaben is an endocrine-disrupting chemical that interferes with the actions of hormones. Endocrine disruptors can affect organs sensitive to hormones, including the mammary gland in the breast that produces milk. Vandenberg says that although the study did not evaluate breast cancer risk, these changes in the mammary tissue are involved in mitigating cancer risk in women. Producer Diana Opong introduces us to a woman whose time in the Peace Corps inspired her to start an international nonprofit that supports resiliency, history, and fighting injustice. Seed saving and food justice has always been rooted in social, political, and environmental activism. The history that seeds carry the lineage of that is, is connected to traditions of resistance. And I think that that is what communities are waking up to right now in light of many of the things going on in our world, in particular, a pandemic like COVID-19. My name is Sherry Manning. I live in Denver, Colorado, and I'm the founder and executive director of Global Seed Savers. We're an international nonprofit organization committed to building food and seed sovereignty. Right now, our work is in the Philippines. In short, food sovereignty is about returning the power of the food system to the local community. And food sovereignty, seed sovereignty, is about farmers being the ones choosing what they're growing, when they're growing it, how they're growing it, and that it's culturally appropriate. And the reason that that is important is that in the last 30 years, and really prior to that, but in particular in the last 30 years, the biochemical industry has taken over ownership of our food system. And so literally chemical companies now own the majority of the world's food in form of input and fertilizers and pesticides. And what that's done is that has stripped away communities across the world, not just in the Philippines, it's happening here in the United States as well, their ability to truly own their food system. Seeds, for example, are designed to be replanted time and time again. They're actually our most beautiful self-replicating system we have. They're literally designed to be replanted. But when you take that ability away and you force farmers and communities to purchase seed time and time again, that resiliency is lost. And so we're really in the business of, of helping restore communities' ownership to their own food systems, where they're the ones deciding what they're growing, when they're growing it, how they're growing it. And 
frankly, this is even more important now during a global pandemic. And what we have seen in the last three months is a resurgence, a massive demand around the world for people to go back to this as they're recognizing that our food supply systems are broken. And as communities are shut off from each other and can't travel, can't distribute widely, both within a country or even abroad, communities are waking up and saying, hey, how can I have access to food? Well, I need to grow that food myself, or I need to work with my neighbors to grow that food. Where do we get our seeds? Oh, from people that have been saving seeds. Okay, I need to learn to save seeds too. And so, you know, I think it's been really emboldening to see this growing interest, pun intended, in the work that we do. My work in the Philippines began long, long ago, well over 13 years ago when I served as a Peace Corps volunteer from 2006 to 2008. And so that was my first entree into to working in the Philippines that then became the foundation of what's now Global Seed Savers. Very, very fortunate to, to call the Philippines a second home and continue to work side by side with tremendous uh, Filipinos and community members throughout the 7,000 islands to, to help support the visions and the work that they want to see happen. I decided to join the Peace Corps back in my undergraduate days. I actually remember the, the time when I was like, I want to do the Peace Corps. I was a, a government major thinking about justice and governmental systems and, and wanting to give back. And I had the opportunity to go to Morocco. And for me, that was the first time that I saw a developing nation or that I, I actually saw in another country's context the what for me was the visual cues of injustices and, and poverty and, and just being face to face with another culture very different than my own. And, and I actually remember the moment it was walking through a village in Morocco. And, and then I remember getting back to campus that fall, attending a recruiting session. And I was like, one track mind, I'm graduating and then I'm doing the Peace Corps. I always like to say that the Philippines chose me as my country of placement because back when I did the Peace Corps, you didn't get to apply to a specific country like you do now. Before I left for Peace Corps, one of my cousins had traveled in Southeast Asia in the 70s. And so she gave me a pendant that she was given by an Ifugao man that she met in the Philippines. It's silver. I didn't know what it was at the time. And I remember getting to the Philippines, we did our training, and my dear friend now, Manang Nelly, who um, would become my supervisor for our region of volunteers, she looked at me and she saw me in the necklace and she was like, where did you get that? Because it's the symbol of fertility in the Cordillera Mountain region, which was where I was assigned. I really believe that this was meant to be. There was not an accident in the fact that I was assigned to the Philippines. I was assigned to a town called Tublai, Binguet, which is about an hour north of Baguio City, about seven hours north of Manila, the capital, on the main island of Luzon. The Philippines is 7,000 plus islands. I was assigned to a host family in the Coastalans and chose to live with them the whole two and a half years, which was really an essential piece of my service. But I was a naive Western do-gooder 
who had never grown a vegetable in my life, but certainly ate organic. And so really spent my service learning what it means to grow food and why that's important and how hard that is and learn to you know work side by side with them to do that. I learned pretty quickly that the family has this incredible piece of land. It's nearly 100 acres. It's been in their family since the 1800s. It's been farmed scrupulously organic. I'll never forget the first time I walked down there. It's about a three kilometer hike from town proper. Now a little bit more paved, but at the time pretty dirt road. And I remember hiking down there with Auntie Olive, who I then would spend two and a half years of beautiful dialogue and conversation and time with. And it's an incredible space. The family, the Kosalans, um, after a 30 year legal battle, they were restored their ancestral land right. And so they now have their ancestral land right to this piece of property, which for indigenous peoples rarely happens. Like land disputes are a huge piece of all of this work and people truly owning their own land. And then, you know, in turn, the sovereignty that that allows is, is essential. So yeah, I remember going down there and just being in awe of this space. It's off the grid, no electricity. There's cultivated land, there's forested land, there's a river that runs through it. I mean, it's just a, a little piece of magic. I feel so fortunate and blessed to have spent two and a half years learning and listening and being a small part of the story of that land. Our founding farm in the Philippines is Enca, Friends of Enca Farm, which has now become Global Seed Savers, an international nonprofit committed to supporting food and seed sovereignty and building hunger-free and healthy communities. Initially, our work was really about supporting the Kosalan family and their vision for Enca Farm. Over the years, did some typhoon relief, helping raise some funds to help them repair huts and things after massive storms. The Philippines is the most climate-vulnerable nation in the world. Storms continue to ravage the islands. And so the realities of what that means, in particular for agricultural communities, is really astounding. And, and we've just seen, as our work has evolved at Global Seed Savers, why our work in supporting community seed libraries is essential. In fact, in 2018, a typhoon, Mangkuhut, hit the northern Philippines, which is where our primary community is, where I served as a volunteer and where we have had a seed library since 2017. And all of our partner farmers were, were impacted by that typhoon, crop loss, farm damage, all of it. But literally days after the storm, they were all able to go and get seeds. Seeds that they had grown, seeds that had been adapted to the local environment, and, and they had instant and ready access to seed. And so that to us was an example of why every community needs a seed library. And COVID is teaching us that even more as people are banging down our door saying, hey, can you sell us seeds? Can you teach us about seed saving? Imagine if every community in the Philippines or here or anywhere had a seed library, people would have ready access to growing their own food. And then returning a portion of those seeds each time helps build in that sustainability. Work that started with one family farm is now growing into a nationwide movement around the Philippines to restore seed and food sovereignty. And COVID is only highlighting the injustices and the inequities and the lack of access for a lot of folks, in particular in hyper-urban areas. And so we're excited to see how our work is expanding because of COVID to reach, you know, not only the farmers that we partner with, but to bring that farmer's knowledge 
to these urban environments. I just feel very blessed that I have such a deep connection to another culture and a place and a people. A principle in all of our work, and, and I certainly feel this way in, in my role, is that communities have resiliency already built in. I think in particular, communities in developing countries, I think in particular BIPOC communities have resiliency because that's part of those communities' histories. And it's, it's wonderful to get to be a part of programs or organizations that can just help uplift and help stand by those communities while they continue to recognize the power and the resiliency that they already have. I'm just, I'm proud of the people that are making this all happen. It's, it's not about me. It's not even about the people sitting in the chairs anywhere right now. It's about this bigger purpose. And I'm, it's really humbling and, and amazing to think that, you know, a little idea that I had by having a deep personal connection to one family is now blossoming into a, you know, a nationwide movement to restore food and seed sovereignty. You know, that's, it's really, it's uh, humbling and it's exciting and it's, it uh, makes me want to keep doing the work to, to support in whatever role and way that continues to mean and evolve that all of this is bigger than ourselves. You know, a quote that I, I love and that we use a lot in our work is Wendell Berry, who more or less made the statement of, if your life's work can happen in your lifetime, you're, you're not thinking big enough. And so, yes, there are things that we need to change right now all across the world and have been long overdue for change. But I think something that, that I really love and that I really think about is like, who are we doing this all for? The next generation, you know, I hope that we move the needle enough in this area that the dialogue or the, the movements, it's not the same conversation, right? Like we move it enough that we're leaving it better for them and then they're gonna do the next push. I hope my legacy will be that in all of these communities where we're working, the seed libraries remain. The next generation of farmers are doing even more of that, that the systems and the local ownership that we're, that we're helping foster will live long beyond all of us. Sherry Manning and the rest of the Global Seed Savers team continue to teach farmers throughout the Philippines how to save seeds, maintain seed libraries, and leave the world a better place for future generations. For more information about seed saving, you can go to globalseedsavers.org. I'm Joshua Thompson, classical pianist, artistic director specializing in the masterworks written by composers of African descent. And I'm Angela Brown, internationally renowned opera singer. And this is your melanated moment in classical music. Camilla Ella Williams, born October 18, 1919, and died January 29, 2012. She was an American operatic soprano who performed nationally and internationally. After studying with the renowned teachers in New York City, she was the first African-American to receive a regular contract with a major American opera company, the New York City Opera, where she performed the title role of Chocho-san in Madame Butterfly. She had earlier won honors in vocal competitions and the Marian Anderson Fellowship in 1943 and 44. 
1954, she became the first African-American to sing a major role with the Vienna State Opera. She later also performed as a soloist with numerous European orchestras. As a concert artist, she toured throughout the United States as well as Asia, Australia, and New Zealand. In 1977, she was the first African-American appointed as professor of voice at Indiana University, where she taught until 1997. I'm Angela Brown. And I'm Joshua Thompson. And this has been your Melanated Moment in Classical Music. Performance artist Emily Michaels King has a new production called Digital, an immersive, tangible, virtual experience for the Zoom era. KFAI Sheila Regan spoke with King about nostalgia, family history, and bloodline. Working with technology has become such a prominent part of our lives. It sometimes feels like my phone and my computer are an extension of my physical body. My name is Emily Michaels King, and I'm a performing artist based in St. Paul, Minnesota. My work is interdisciplinary in nature, and it tends to combine movement, text, sound, visual art, really strong aesthetic focus to look at topics like the body and introversion, womanhood, and self-discovery. My piece is called Digital. Digital is really this disorienting collage of camera curation, screen sharing, choreography, image manipulation, and it's kind of an archival assemblage of memory and the detritus of our lives, digital and physical. I want to meet the teenage version of my mother. I want to go back to when she was freer. Was there a time like that? Like Marty McFly going back to 1955 and realizing that his straight-laced mother smoked and drank and parked. She parked. I think of her as quiet, but she's not. The piece will be presented live each night via Zoom from my bedroom. All of the technological elements involved in the work, like my laptop and Zoom and cell phone, and all their specific features and capabilities, the way that they move, those are all really intricate and essential to the piece. So you get all of that intimacy of being in my room and seeing my physical things in there, my books and my earrings and my pillows and all this stuff the physical stuff, and then you also peek into the intimacy of being able to see into my computer, the way that my cursor moves, what goes into the search bar. I really extended that peek into interior spaces into a digital space. 
there's absolutely this influence of my childhood and nostalgia and some flavor of 90s, 2000s pop culture coming in. Where I'm really influenced by my 90s and 2000s upbringing. So in the soundscape, there's peppering in of Power of Love by Huey Lewis and the News from Back to the Future. You just get these flavors of movies or songs that really influenced me as a kid. Um, There's also created soundscapes of mine that use some body sounds, so like stomach digesting, and then also digital sounds, typing and internal processings of computers. The real heart and the blood and guts of this piece really come down to bloodline. I think when we examine something like bloodline and family history and trauma, it's not something that is logical or cognitive. It's really in the body and uh, intangible and, again, that's subconscious, chaotic, strange space. My work is often really personal and somewhat autobiographical in nature. I really align with the Frida Kahlo quote that says, I paint self-portraits because I am so often alone because I am the subject that I know best. And I really believe in making work from who we are, from our particular experiences and histories. My work is always aiming to bring people into their bodies and into their sensations and into both their particular mysteries and the mystery of the overall mystery of what it means to be alive. Just what we need. That was performance artist Emily Michaels King talking about her production digital. The interview was produced by KFAI Sheila Regan. Support for Miniculture on KFAI comes from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Glow in the Dark by Kevin Bartlett. This show is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this show again, sign up for our podcast or visit the 51% archives on our website at wamc.org. This week's show is number 1653.